You're listening to B2B Nation, a podcast from Technology Advice designed to help marketers navigate the modern B2B buyer's journey. Here's your host, Mike Pastor. Think for a second about how your company approaches SEO. Do you treat it like you treat other marketing channels where you closely monitor the resources you put into it and then the return you get on that investment? Eli Schwartz is a growth advisor and SEO expert who had a few things to say about search engine optimization. So we did what some people do when they have things to say. He wrote a book. It's called Product-Led SEO, and it discusses his philosophy about SEO, where companies invest in SEO only when it's going to return a measurable increase in sales, where investments in technical SEO and content creation are treated the same way as other marketing tactics. And where he sometimes advises marketers in B2B that SEO probably isn't worth the effort they're going to put into it. Have a listen. Eli Schwartz, welcome to B2B Nation. Why don't you go ahead and take a minute and tell us who you are and what you do. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So my name is Eli. I am a growth advisor and SEO consultant, although lean more towards growth advisor. I work with companies, mostly larger companies, and helping them to understand where their opportunities lie in growing organic as a channel. And I recently published a book called Product-Led SEO, which dives into the strategies and thought processes behind SEO, very different than nearly every other SEO book out there, which are very focused on tactics. And in my growth advisory, that's the way I work with companies and really helping them to understand, should they even be doing SEO? If they're doing SEO, who are the people they're targeting? What are the, what's the kind of content they should create? What are the teams they should build? And, and my book really digs into all those kinds of things. You know, I would hope that many people pick up my book and discover that SEO is a waste of time for them. And this isn't even something they should do. You know, I'm sure we'll dig into this, but I, I don't believe SEO is a check the box channel. And the companies I end up working with, they usually you know, pass that filter and we talk about why SEO is a box they should check or why they should avoid it. So really happy to be here and, and dig into the specifics around product-led SEO. All right. So when I first started managing website content, it was a long time ago. And SEO was an important method for attracting eyeballs to a specific web page because the monetization was display advertising. So it really didn't matter who you were or what you were trying to do, but the fact that you opened up the page and the ad displayed was a big part of the game. So when I heard product-led SEO in relation to your book, in my mind, I thought about how SEO has evolved since those days and how online content has gone simply from eyeballs to customer acquisitions and then conversions. It made a lot of sense to me on a very basic level, but what is product-led SEO as you discuss it in the book? Yeah, I love how you went that far back. And I, I usually don't even go that far back when I, <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> talk about SEO. So I, I'll also start that far back, you know, and, and you and I have worked for a similar company, which is where I learned SEO. I, I worked at Quinn Street and I worked with affiliates who were doing the kind of SEO where they just need to get people to the site. And that was many, many years ago. There were less people on the internet. There were less websites on the internet and Google was less sophisticated. So getting people to click into your results was a lot easier. We've progressed well beyond that. We've, like you said, we've gone into the customer acquisition where, you know, people don't accidentally click websites unless the website's hacked. Like they know what they're looking, they know what they're looking for. First of all, they know what they, they want to click second of all. And when they arrive there, if it's not the right thing, they're out really quick. So 
the better way of understanding product-led SEO and really tying that into customer and user acquisition is to think of the flip side of product-led SEO, which is content-led SEO. So the, the classic way most people do SEO nowadays is they go to a keyword research tool, whatever tool that is, they take their primary keyword, say it's car insurance, they throw that keyword into, into the keyword research tool, the tool spits back car insurance, auto insurance, car insurance near me, those kinds of things, car insurance quote. And then they go and commission a writer to write that kind of content. And what ends up happening is the content is most likely very, very similar to every other piece of content that has been written following the same exact process. No real thought on how that content is going to be different. Why if a user, forget whether Google will rank that content and you know even show up on Google, but if it does show up on Google, why is a user most likely going to click your content and engage with your content? So none of that thought goes into it. Product-led SEO is I like to think about what is the product we want to offer? What is the experience we want to offer? And thinking about the content that we're going to build based on that experience, based on the specific place in the funnel a user is and is likely going to experience and engage with that content. And only then will we scale out that content. And you know, I have worked with some amazing companies and I have classic examples of companies that have tried the content-led SEO example, and then I get to work with them on the product-led SEO example. So one of my favorite examples of this is uh, a company that spent a couple million dollars on a blog. They built out great content within their niche. They never ever converted anybody and they had a ton of traffic because that content was tangential to the actual product they offered. So yes, they got a lot of traffic and the best they can do with that content was run house ads, essentially try to get people over from the blog over to their core product. But because it was tangential, you basically are dealing with an ad click-through rate of like, do I care enough to click that ad and go over to the product and then buy that product? They didn't convert anybody. Whereas what I'm doing with them now, we're building a content offering that directly ties into their product. So when someone arrives at that content, there may not be a ton of people, but they meet the need for the moment and the product fulfills that need. So what we can dig more into like how to apply product-led SEO, but really like some great examples of that, you know, and I talk about these in my book, are Zillow. Zillow can, could not be a content-led SEO example. You know, they, they couldn't use that, that paradigm for content because what are they going to do? Optimize every single address in the US by writing content? No, instead, they built out an architecture around a product they knew users wanted. And then, and only then were they able to rank on some of the bigger head terms, but they like mortgage and real estate and all that, but they didn't start there. And Yelp's another great example. Yelp isn't putting effort into ranking on every single pizza shop in the world. They are putting effort into building the architecture. So every pizza shop shows up on Yelp and some of them will rank and some of them won't. So we hear marketers all the time talking about getting their messages in front of people. It's that right person at the right time, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I think that that's great that you say like there might not be a ton of volume. So I, I like working with brands who have a big brand and they can do brand SEO. And it's something that you know many SEO consultants and in-house SEO teams will ignore because it's not so sexy to rank on like my brand plus price. There's less volume for it. But the conversion rate on that is immensely high. And if you're not visible on your brand plus price, someone else is, and they're converting your customers. So I think it's important to really understand where somebody is in the funnel, who you want to convert and why they should come to you rather than, you know, I, I really like that car insurance keyword. I want to be number one. And when someone arrives there, you don't actually offer the right kind of insurance. Why would you bother convert? Why would you be able to convert them? 
Yeah, we've seen this in other areas of marketing. I mean, I've over the past decade or so been involved with a lot of webcasts and it was like, get people, get people to show up and show the volume of people. And then as marketers kind of moved into account-based marketing and they could more finely target people, you're not drawing 200 people to a webcast anymore, perhaps, but you, if you draw 25 and they're the right 25, you're doing pretty good. Yes, absolutely. And then you can follow up them and try to convert them. And I, you know, to underscore a second point you made there, which is SEO is a, is a marketing channel. It's just one marketing channel and should have the same rules as every other marketing channel. Why should SEO be measured by rankings or visitors when every other channel is measured by revenue and conversions? So I like to apply the same lens and the same metrics to SEO, which is, you know, do these people matter? And the other thing that, you know, too many people don't do when they think about SEO is they invest in it. So SEO is thought of as free. It's not really free. You need to hire someone. You need to build a team. You need to build content. You need to build a website. That's an investment. So apply that investment into your analysis of whether you're going to drive ROI. The second part, which is builds on top of that, which is yes, it's an investment. So therefore you should put more money into it. Don't just try to spend the, the least amount possible. If you think you can drive a lot more volume and drive a lot more conversions from it, take some of that paid marketing budget, put it into more SEO and drive more content. Don't just say, well, it's free. And, you know, I want to get the cheapest piece of content possible from, you know, some third world country where content writers are cheap, invest in it and it'll pay itself back. So when we talk about products and we talk about sales, the marketing mind sort of immediately goes to funnels the image appears in my head. So I told our in-house SEO team here at Technology Advice that you were going to be on the show and I offered them a chance to put forth a question or two and they immediately wanted to know about tips for funnel optimization. So what do you have for them? So I love that question. I, I think before you could talk about funnel optimization, you have to talk about funnel awareness. And like I, you know, I just was saying about SEO that it gets its own metrics. Somehow SEO doesn't there's no awareness of that where it fits in the funnel. There's this idea of like, well, I need to know what I'm converting from SEO because, you know, I spent all this money in SEO and like, you know, whether it's a consultant or an in-house team or whether it's content, you need to be aware of where SEO is in a funnel and know that it should be in a funnel. SEO is all the way at the top of a funnel. So people are in the bathroom on a train when we're able to commute again, they're, you know, sitting at the dinner table and they're Googling stuff. They may not be buying right then and there, but they're becoming aware of something. Those are people that they're, they're in there. Again, if you think about funnel, they're in the awareness phase. And now if you think about SEO as a part of a funnel and not its own funnel, you can think about how do you bring those people at the top of the funnel lower in the funnel? So maybe when they're in the awareness phase, you're writing long tail content and you want to get them to subscribe to your email list. And then from then on, the email list will be actually converting those users. Don't think about, well, they subscribed to the email list and I lost that SEO conversion or I needed, to, or maybe you can retarget them with paid advertising and don't think, well, paid advertising stole that from me. When you think of it as a part of a funnel, you think about how do these other, other channels work with SEO to convert it? I think of SEO as an assist. Very, most likely it will not be a final converting channel unless it's some sort of transactional e-commerce where someone Googles and buys, it's Amazon or something like that. But if it's a, a expensive product and a lot of times, you know, like I, I said in the intro, I tell companies not to do SEO. I don't think many B2B companies should bother with SEO because it's so high in the funnel, you're never going to be able to prove your investment worked unless you're doing brand SEO. 
So for B2B, and I've, I've talked to companies and worked with companies that their products are in the millions. No one is Googling stuff on their commute and just like whipping out a credit card and being like, all right, I'm signing up for four years of AWS, you know, for millions <laughs> of dollars. That's just not happening. In the awareness phase, you want them to give them a comparison. Here's how AWS versus Azure versus Google Cloud measures up. And now they can have a conversation about it, but you're never, ever going to be able to prove that SEO converted that channel because so many more things, including probably a handshake, had to go into that sale. So when you're aware of it, then you can build and optimize towards that funnel. The other thing I like about SEO is you can be in the bottom of the funnel if you're in B2B, maybe you're at a, uh, you know, again, when we're able to go to events again, you're at an event and you have a booth. You might want when people walk away from the booth that they Google you, like who are the competitors of company X that you show up. SEO might be helping to close that deal. Again, you're probably not going to be able to prove it, but just know where it fits and optimize for exactly where it fits in the funnel. Are there any specific SEO practices that you think are among the most important, but that are often overlooked by organizations that are trying to drive traffic with search? There are, there are two that I want to call out. One is uh, I'm not a big fan of technical SEO. So for anybody out there, I'm not the smartest technical SEO out there. I, you know, I, I'm good at it. I, I hope I'm good, better than most people because I do it, but I'm not the greatest. I don't think technical SEO is necessary for many, many companies because their websites are just not big enough to have technical SEO issues that if they fix them, they're going to see marginal increases in revenue. Maybe you're not up to the best practices. Maybe your title tags could be slightly improved. But if you improve your title tags, are you going to see any notice, noticeable improvement in conversion? Very, very unlikely. If your website architecture is a disaster, then maybe you will. So that's why, again, I'm like not a huge fan of technical SEO. I would measure it, look for where there are things broken, and then decide whether things need to be fixed based on whether they'll return value for the investment you have to put in. One area of technical SEO that I think I always see improvement is on internal linking. So when you link to other pages in your website, Google and users are able to find those other pages. And this is very often overlooked where content's created and no one figures out how to make sure there's direct pathways to, those con to that content. One easy way to do this is with a sitemap. So an HTML sitemap worked with many sites to build them HTML sitemaps, drop it in the footer, and suddenly all of their website is easily accessible, as long as it's not too large, to crawlers. And the content seems to, again, you can't, you're never going to be able to see this in direct rankings, but the content seems to, seems to get more traffic as more of the pages get to rank on long tail search. I feel like linking, it was really an integral part of the web. Back in the days we were talking about before, like getting traffic to monetize with display ads. It was one of the neat things for those of us who remember the internet, you know, at its beginnings that you can just click and go from topic to topic and guide you through. And I feel like because people want traffic, because it could be a little bit unsightly for a number of reasons, we've gotten away from linking in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, that is thanks to new technology around design and being able to structure websites. So the, my two favorite examples, when people ever ask me, like, what are some good examples of internal link sites? My two examples of best internal link sites in the world, Wikipedia, cross links to everything. And it is the ugliest design ever. And getting even uglier than Wikipedia, we have our award-winning Craigslist. So Craigslist has the best cross links, internal links possible, but there's no design at all. 
So the challenge is when you start caring about visuals and how you're going to display things. And I've, I've had issues with this with my clients where I'll recommend they build out their header to add more links. And then they say, well, it's ugly. Or I say, can you add more links in the footer? And then be like, well, how's this going to look to have 80 million links in the footer? And I'll point them to Amazon, which Amazon has an entire screen of footer links. So it doesn't really matter. But yeah, you're right. People used to do a much, much better job at internal linking. It was a lot easier when it was just straight up HTML and you could just cross link everything possible. But when you think about styling pages and it's going to look ugly because yeah, you have these great fonts and then a link is styled differently and it jumps out at you. We have gotten away from that for sure. Yeah, I think you're right. I think when everybody wants their site to look like a coffee table book or something with big images and not a lot of text, and that's the the links just they're not there the way they used to be. So you had another you had another observation that was less about technical SEO. What was that? Yes. So this is one I, that I slightly mentioned earlier, which is brand SEO. And this is again often overlooked because it's not sexy. So I was working with a really, really large brand. Their brand name was probably 20 times the monthly search volume as the primary keyword of what they did, but they weren't focused on their brand name. And everyone was focused, everyone else in that industry was focused on their brand name because they wanted to be like that big gorilla in the space. So they were focused on that, that keyword that was 120th of their brand name. By moving them over to focus on their brand name, we actually drove a lot more traffic and actually drove a lot more conversions because people are looking for them. That's where the search volume is. So that's what I would say is like, really dig into your own brand name if you're a big enough brand, because that's where their conversions are going to be. Look for, and here's some tools. There's a, a tool called, I think Uber suggests Neil Patel's tool um, and keywordtool.io, which is a similar tool. And you can find all the suggested queries throw your brand name in there and look at all the suggested queries that come up, make sure that you're visible very high on all those queries. If there's like, Hey, brand a versus brand B and you're not visible, create that content. If there's brand a, their brand pricing, you're not visible, create that content. So that's where you should get all those terms. And then you'll go into like Google your brand name and look at all the suggested queries at the bottom. If you're not visible on those queries, create that because that is, you know, from a, a visibility standpoint, you need to create that content and more than likely Google will consider you relevant for your own brand name. If a B2B marketer picks up product-led SEO, which I think we should say is now available, whatever, wherever it is you buy your books, whatever format you buy your books, what are the conversations, right? We all kind of read books and, and read the, and then you bring them into work and they work their way into your conversations with your colleagues. Do you ever think about like, what, what are the outcomes you want people to, to share. What are you hoping people take back to their colleagues and say, have we thought about this? I think the biggest message of the book really is that SEO is a marketing channel. It's not its own black box, like monolithic, scary thing. There's like a way to do every other marketing, like to do marketing in every other channel, like paid marketing, for example, there's a way to do it. And when you ask someone doing your paid marketing, like, can we spend more money How's our performance? They're not like, well, the algorithm and you're just like, I gave you a thousand dollars. Did I, uh, did I meet my, my goals or not? But when you, when you look at SEO, it's like, well, the algorithm is against us. The algorithm is for us. Google changed everything. We have to, we have to do this and just wait and we have to pray. And like, it, I don't think SEO needs to be like that. When you think of SEO from the right perspective, which is human beings 
going onto Google, looking for something to meet a very specific demand they have. Are you going to meet that demand or not? And can you bring that across to them on a search engine? And ultimately, Google is an AI company. Google's using AI to be just like humans. Google's ultimate ideal is to, as if they were a human curated library to give you exactly what they want. And you know you can see this in the way they do Google Assistant and all their, their smart devices. They're not looking to just curate search. They're looking to create per, like personal experiences. That's what search is. So if you could fool a human being in thinking that you're the right fit for the right time, you'll probably fool Google too. So I say, put the focus back on people. Think about SEO as a marketing channel like every other marketing channel with the same rules as every other marketing channel. And for B2B marketers, if SEO is a fit for you, my book is, you know, gives some guidelines on how you can build a strategy. If SEO is not a fit for you, then you should buy my book and figure out it's not a fit for you. You know, it, uh, my, the hardcover version of the book is the most expensive version. It's $25. I guarantee you, you will save more than $25 and not wasting money in SEO if SEO is not a fit for you. Like I, you should buy everyone on your team a book. Even if your team is a thousand people, you will save money on not investing in SEO if SEO is not the right fit for you. All right. So you mentioned Google changing everything up on people, which they are prone to do. There's a couple of things coming down the pipe from Google that have come up on previous episodes of B2B Nation. Other guests have brought them up and I wanted to get your thoughts on them. The first is less SEO, but it's more marketing. And that's the loss of support for third party cookies. How do you see that? So in my world, we never had any tracking data because if you think about how Google monetizes, they built their entire business off of excellent search, off of creating great experiences from a search standpoint to take over all of the search world. However, they make all their money from the ad part of it. So they build great tools in helping you understand when your advertising is working. They do not build great tools to help you understand when your organic marketing is working. So from an organic standpoint, and again, in my world on the organic side, we never had any data. I think Google Analytics massively, massively undercuts the organic channel. The tool I use to track my SEO performance is Google Search Console, which is probably not accurate either, but it's Google giving data from their own data. And it's apples to apples. Every company is going to get the same sanitized, normalized data. So if I want to see my performance, I have to trust it from there. But every other tool, again, Google Analytics, I mean, they've been tracking wars forever. So third-party tracking should not affect your SEO. You shouldn't be using any other third-party tool to measure your SEO other than Google Search Console. Again, it may not be accurate, may not align with what you see in your other tracking tools, but it is a good, the best, most cleanest way you're going to see how your performance is on Google. All right, and the second Google change that we know is coming is slated now for this summer, and that's the page experience update. And I'm kind of curious what you're going to say here because you said you're not a big technical SEO fan. Am I allowed to flip this one back on the host? What do you think I'm going to say? My, so my experience with this is that the people who are into technical SEO are really psyched about this and are really playing this up and are think it's going to like really turn things on its head. The content SEO people seem to be a little less worried about it. And I just, I wonder if that's, you see what you want to see, right? It's a, it's page speed and things like that is a technical thing. They're going to get excited about it. The content people, it's like, well, it's kind of out of my hands. (laughs) So, yeah. So my answer is a little bit deeper than that, which is I, I'm not too concerned about it at all because I think again, and I I talk about page speed in my book and I did not talk about the page experience update because I I wrote it and finished my book before that they really got into this and I didn't revisit it. But I view Google again, like 
an engine trying to give a personal human experience as if they give a personal human experience, which is what AI is, artificial intelligence, to every user searching to give them exactly what they want. Now, Google's not going to remove a website if it's the best fit for a user just because it's a little bit slow. And Google has even said that. It's a, the page speed is a very, very minor part of the algorithm. What it means is that if you have a very slow website and all other websites on your, in your vertical are faster on mobile only, you may be demoted. And it's only a may be demoted. And there are plenty of examples of search and like the examples I use when I talk about this is do a, do a search for a specific vehicle that you want to buy near you. Dealer websites, car dealer websites are horrifically slow, but they're all there. They're all in Google. And what it is, is like, if you think about when you have to go to a very, very competitive space, let's say the news space where everyone is uh, taking syndicated content to talk about the latest you know, election, let's say make it even local city council election. You have 10 different articles talking about the city council election. If your website is too slow, Google may remove you from the mobile index only. Now, I have never, ever seen a website be removed from that because I've never worked with anyone that slow and I've seen slow websites. More than that, I can't tell you, and I've, I've surveyed this on Twitter, I've never found an example of anyone improving their page speed and getting more traffic. And Google has not even said that that's the case. Now, I worked... Um, with a company in the rental car space, enterprise.com has a page score of one out of a hundred and they do just fine. They rank number one on like every term on mobile for like rent a car in, in San Francisco, rent a car in New York, they're doing fine. So what I'd say is on the page experience update, calculate it relative to the investment you're going to make and improving page experiences and improving page speed is not cheap, right? I, I worked with a company that was in the analytics space and they had data centers and they had been given a proposal from an SEO agency that told them that page speed was the number one thing they had to fix. That would have been millions and millions of dollars. They would never, ever return that investment. Should they improve their page speed? And should they spend millions of dollars improving their page speed? Absolutely, if they can find ROI from a user standpoint. If users are more likely to be retained and users are more likely to refer them and users are more likely to upgrade and use their tools more, yes, by all means, page experiences benefit users. But to do it just because you're hoping to see an improvement in your Google traffic, I don't think it's ever justified. So that's the way I'd approach the page experience update. If Google is giving you more information that your website's too slow and you think it's too slow for users, an example, you know, a, a place you might look is in e-commerce. Amazon is very fast. Walmart's pretty fast. If you're not pretty fast and it takes people a while to get into your, your funnel and to into your shopping cart, they may bounce but not because Google told them to bounce. It's because your website's too slow. So that is that is the way I'd approach it. And I don't think it's a technical SEO thing. I think too many people talk about page experience because and page speed because it's the only metric in SEO that you can have red, yellow, green. You're just too slow, you're medium, and you're, you're fast. Every other metric is qualitative. I can say you're good, I can say you're bad. Oh, in this tool, you're doing great. Oh, in that tool, you're doing terrible. But like red, yellow, green, you're slow or you're fast. Here's like... A, a tool that everyone trusts. There's a, if you look at all of the, so there are rules, right? There are like terms and conditions for Google search and when you'll get booted and you're violating the guidelines and you know when you can get a penalty. If you look at all of those, those are all about great user experiences. So one of the things that Google has always said they didn't like was what they call search and, is search and search, where you go to, 
let's say a tag page and tags aren't specifically called out. You go to a tag page and then from there you go to another page. Google's trying to get you to that final page. They don't want that experience where you click on a result and then need to click on another result. So they are using that sort of AI to like weed that stuff out. So if you keep the user in mind and the user experience in mind and say, would a user appreciate this or would a user not appreciate this? I think that's your best guideline for like whether Google will appreciate it or not. All right. If we were having this conversation one year from now, other than your position on the bestseller list, what do you think we'd be talking about? What do you think would be different? Why can't we talk about the bestseller list? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Got to earn it. You earn it. We'll have you back and you can talk about it. How's that? <laughs> well, so the book's been on sale for a couple of days now, and I've been amazed at the sales. Like I, I wrote this book because I just had things I wanted to say. And like, it's now sitting on a bunch of bestseller lists. And to me, it validates that there's so much curiosity around SEO more than I ever imagined. So I'm thrilled. Like I can only handle a few clients at the same time. So this, I think it benefits the wider industry. So anybody in the SEO world, go out and get them. But uh, I think if we were having this conversation a year from now, I do think that companies and consultants and marketers are going to become more in line with what the right ideal is for SEO and building content for users and building experiences for users. And I know everyone always says the user's the focus, but like you look around at like a lot of websites, that's not true. Like uh, I think the worst example of not building for users is medical content. And Google has, and I don't talk about these things, the eat, you know, the word expertise, authority, and trustworthiness, and like you need to be authoritative. If you need to measure whether you're meeting an eat metric, whether you're actually authoritative when you're, whether you're actually telling the truth, then you're not right. So like in the medical space, that's what Google's trying to weed out. We all have this problem where something hurts you and then you go to Google and you need to find out if you're dying and when you're dying. Right. So like we we all diagnose ourselves with some form of cancer and then hourly. Right. So like, (laughs) and if you, depending on your level of hypochondria, you, you may spend more time looking for the answer that you want, either that you're dying and you need to tell your family or that you're not dying and you could just move along with your leg falling off. So that means that you're going to visit a lot of websites. And as you visit those websites, you can really see how content has been written towards SEO instead of written towards users and helping users to get to the right place. And the right place might be calling a doctor. The right place might not be selling them a uh, nutritional supplement. So that's what I would say. It's like we and marketers in general, we're all guilty of being good marketers and not thinking about ourselves when we're doing search. And I, I think that in a year from now, Google will be one more year advanced on this AI and that will be closer to the ideal. And they'll realize that like you, it's not about faking out Google. It's really about faking out users. And if you're faking out users, you're doing a good job. Like that's who you should not faking them out, but you should be providing those good experiences that they like you, even if you don't deserve to be liked. And, you know, for anyone that wants to see what this is like, like what that experience is like, try searching for something and then do a follow on search, like look for something to eat for lunch. And then look for um, how much, right? Like any sort of question in Google. And you'll see that all your follow-on suggested queries are based on that first query. So it's not about like that one keyword, you know, how much lunch should cost is it something you're only going to rank on if someone actually searched for where do I go eat lunch? 
So I, I think we're going to get more and more into these user experiences and realizing where people are in the funnel and create content and experiences and products for that, rather than this tool tells me that everyone searches for that keyword. They search for car insurance. I'm going to write a lot of useless content for car insurance or for the more evil people. I'm going to write a lot of useless content on, you know, seven reasons you have brain cancer right now. Actually, I want to give a, a shout out to the SEO world and to, uh, and to Google, which is the, I, last time I checked, and it's maybe been a few weeks, there isn't that terrible content on COVID. Like most of the COVID content is if you go, do searches, you're going to find the CDC. You're going to find some very credible sources. So again, shout out to the SEOs for not optimizing content on your dying from COVID and you need to go to the emergency room right now. So if anybody's tried, Google has caught you. And Google, like almost every single COVID search, like cough, Google's like, here are the 16 signs you may have COVID. And it's very authoritative. And they link to the CDC. Like, again, they've done a great job there. They could improve on brain cancer because hopefully, <laughs> hopefully COVID will disappear and, <laughs> and no one will ever want to hear of it again. So as for that last question, what is the one tool that if we took it away from you, Eli Schwartz, your productivity would just plummet? So you told me in advance that everyone says the phone and I have to be cliche and say the phone, but I'm going to say it for a different reason. I like everyone else. I'm totally glued to my phone. I, I love to like, you know, check on social media and you know, do things that I'm not supposed to be doing when I'm supposed to be paying attention to kids and working and all that. Right. But like the reason I love my phone is because it helps me to do my job better. I have never owned an iPhone. Actually, I bought a, a, a burner iPhone so I could try out Clubhouse. And after a couple of weeks, I realized I didn't need Clubhouse. So I don't use that burner iPhone. But I've always had Android. Since smartphones have come out, I've always had Androids. And I'm very, very focused on the Google world, obviously, because Google is the largest search engine. And I use my phone to understand where the directions Google is going. So a couple of ways I use my phone. So number one, in the camera app, there's something called Google Lens, which... Google Lens, you could take a picture of words and it will tell you what those words are. It'll allow you to Google the words. It'll allow you to translate the words. I used it in Vietnam to understand whether uh, something I was looking at had eggs from chickens or eggs from another kind of bird. Like I had no idea what it was. I just wanted to buy eggs and not, they wanted to buy something familiar to me. That's search. So if you think about crappy Google Translate and, you know, creating content experiences for other languages and like, well, I'm going to use Google Translate. I'm going to change every other word. So Google won't know that I use Google Translate. Like if Google can take an image and recognize the words in it, they can also put the words back into Google Translate that you took out. So Google Lens to me is like a great tool. And also with that, like they can do image recognition kind of okay. Like they, you take a picture of something and then you can find it on Google, which again, like when people talk about SEO advice, they're like, well, make sure that you have alt tags on all of your images. Otherwise, Google won't know what those images are. From Google Lens, you can see that is absolutely not the case, right? Google can recognize images. So if you put a chair on your website, you don't need to tell Google it's a chair. They know what a chair looks like. More complicated things they won't know. That's one piece of my phone. The other piece of my phone, which is I love doing voice searches because I love watching in real time how Google will take the string of words that I have said, write the complete wrong thing, change it, and then change it again, then get to where I was saying. I can put a fake accent on my words. I can slur my words and they'll get to most of the time, get to where I'm going. So much so that I got frustrated. I'm like, damn it, Google, don't you understand what I'm trying to say? Like, and then I like have to check myself and be like, wait, I'm talking to my phone and it most of the time understands me. That's pretty good. Like that, those are definitely first world problems. But like from voice search, 
I can really see how Google interprets everything around me and the way I'm saying it to come up with a search. And there is no reason why that is not happening on every single search that happens, like all the billions of searches that happen on Google every second, like that's what they're doing. So it really helps me better understand my world and how to create experiences. And, and it's, again, it's not about optimizing for a keyword. It's optimizing for a string. It's optimizing for an emotion. Right, like I'll give an example. I'm totally going to flub this. I should have prepared this part. But there's a movie that won the Oscars the other day called Promise Something, Promise Girl. So my wife had looked it up on my computer and I, I come back to my computer and I see this, that she'd looked it up because she saw the Oscars and it said that it had the, the questions that people also ask questions around it. And one of the questions, I think there was something sensitive in the movie. It was about a traumatic experience. One of the questions is, is this movie triggering? So that's not a, that's not a, a, a search query. That's an emotion. So imagine that now you're creating, if you wanted to optimize for the movie, instead of optimizing for here's how much it costs here, who the actors and actresses are in the movie, you're optimizing for an emotion. You're optimizing for like, here's what you're going to get out of the movie. And here's what you should be aware of in the movie. That's creating experiences. That's not optimizing for Google trends and, and, you know, top search keywords. So that's why I love using my phone because I'm doing, I, the average person, does, I think Google says does about hundred queries a day. I'm not, I'm definitely not average. I'm querying all the time. And I love using my phone to really learn the directions Google's going and they're doing it in real time, right? The movie had just won the Oscars and in real time, they're adding an emotional search on it. So, you know, by seeing that in real time, I can really, really learn about where the world is going. And you know, one of the things that I really drive home in my book, which is a lot of the SEO advice is the same SEO advice that people gave 15 years ago, which is optimize your title tag, you know, write some good content. Here's how many keywords you need to have. And the world has changed. 15 years ago, I didn't have a smartphone. Smartphones didn't exist. You know, there weren't that many searches on Google. There weren't that many websites on Google. International search was a lot easier. Translations were terrible. Google has made so much progress. And the one thing I call out in the book, which is I just moved from the Bay Area to Texas, and, you know, I, I lived in Palo Alto at least before COVID at least five times a day, I saw a Waymo car. So Waymo is Google's autonomous driving division. So Google's got these cars on the road, which have driven more miles than every other single company doing autonomous driving. So more than Chrysler, actually the partner with Chrysler. So more than like GM with Cruise, more, way more than Uber, like billions of miles they've driven. I think some of those are simulated. Some of those are real and they don't, kill anybody. They're using AI. So like they've got that level of AI that can go into the cars. And obviously there's different AI that goes in the cars that goes in the search. Why wouldn't the advice on SEO have changed over 15 years? So that's the thing I really like to drive home. And, you know, the thing I really underscore in my book, which is the whole world has changed around SEO and, and Google will continue progressing. All right, Eli Schwartz, author of Product-Led SEO. Good luck with the book, and thanks for being on B2B Nation. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me, Michael. That was Eli Schwartz, author of Product-Led SEO. I'm Mike Pastor from Technology Advice. If you like this episode of B2B Nation, make sure you subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice so you don't miss the next one, or the one after that. You get the idea. Many thanks to my technology advice colleagues. You can't spell SEO without S for Sarah Wingate, E for Emily Whalen, and O for, oh no, I can't forget Amy Dunn. Here's mnemonics in the guild. Until next time.